The Book Thingo podcast is a lively discussion about romance books, culture, and chronotopes. Jennifer Halleck joins us for episode 61, recorded at the 2018 IASPA conference in Sydney. Book Thingo would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which this episode was recorded, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We also acknowledge the contributions of Australia's Indigenous people to our shared literary heritage. Welcome to the Book Thingo Podcast, talking about books we love, especially romance. Kill a fairy fast on the Book Thingo Podcast. Welcome back to the Book Thingo Podcast. I'm Kat Mayo from bookthingo.com.au, an Aussie blog for romance readers. I am currently recovering from the IASPA conference, which was held in Sydney last month. IASPA stands for the International Association for the Study of Popular Romance. It was an amazing conference. I loved hearing from people who come from within the genre and love the genre, but who don't sugarcoat problematic aspects of romance fiction. At the top of my must-meet list was author Jennifer Halleck. Jennifer presented a paper on historical romance chronotopes. We talk about the additional work required to set a historical romance outside the familiar Regency setting of Georgette Hire. It is a fascinating topic, and I think it's going to change the way I read romance books. You can find information on the titles and authors we talk about in this episode by going to bookthingo.com.au slash podcast and clicking on episode number 61. You were at the recent conference for IASPA and you presented a paper on historical romance and chronotopes. Yes. Which seems to be the buzzword of the conference. To start off with, can you tell us what a chronotope is? Basically, it's a construct of time and space. And the idea could be historical as the way I dealt with it in terms of a Regency chronotope. But the idea of time could also mean passage of time. So it's basically the study of, of time and space in a literary work. And I added to that geography and race and ethnicity to that construct. Let's look at historical romance first, yes. because you also write within historical romance. Describe to us the most common chronotope for historical romance. Regency dukes with selective accuracy. So that was the, I had three descriptions to put together the chronotope that I thought was sort of the best-selling chronotope. I'd looked to the last six months in U.S. market, bestseller, RWA member, bestseller books, and um, it was definitely about half of them were Regency, and uh, a disproportionate number of them dealt with peers, particularly dukes and duchesses, and they would have duke and duchess in the title. The other point that I mentioned is they're very selectively accurate. In some ways, they will be highly accurate down to titles and the dances used and whether doorknobs existed. But in other ways, they will be completely inaccurate. Um, you know, nobody has syphilis, which was a point that That's I made in some, in some detail <laughs> so about syphilis. I'll include a link. You um, split the paper into two blog posts. Yeah. They both deal with the topic in sort of different ways, but both yes. are equally interesting. And you go yeah. through these examples of what gets <laughs> put in, what gets included, yeah. and what doesn't get included. And I found it interesting because you talk about, you know, people will talk about, you know, a champagne glass doesn't belong in this mm -hmm, time period, mm -hmm. but they ignore 
social realities that have even bigger consequences for the characters. Absolutely. You know, there'll be a common trope is the, the Duke falling for the governess. Just no. I mean, the, the class realities of that time were so strict. Not that you don't have some outliers, and, and outliers are truly the most interesting story fodder, but nevertheless, um, and you have these sort of strapping young dukes, right, that are sort of, you know, chiseled and hot abs. <laughs> and if you if you even watch the Supersizers Go Regency, I don't know if you watch that program on BBC, but they spend a week eating time period diet. And if you look at the Regency diet, there's no way that anyone would have chiseled abs with that diet. And especially if, if you're a peer and you are a person of leisure, they were very proud. Dukes were very proud that they did not work. How can readers be more aware? Be ready for some world building to come. One of the things I've noticed on some of the reviews of, uh, for example, in my study, Jenkins books, was that people would say, well, there's too much history. I felt like I was being lectured at. And I feel that that the lecturing criticism is a bit unfair, but is there is there history? Yes, there is history. A writer in a different time period is going to try and tell you the interesting things, try and set the scene, try and make the time and the place be almost a character in that story. And so they're going to develop it like a character. Be ready for that, that world building and be open to it. And I think the second thing is to not presume you know that history. Many writers who are choosing an unusual setting, they're going to do their research. If they wanted to merely write what they know off the top of their head, they'd write the chronotope. They'd write what Regency, they've already read. Yeah. They'd write Regency because as many authors who write Regency will tell you, you should immerse yourself in reading that chronotope, that genre, and that's your research. Well, if a writer's choosing not to do that, I think most of the time they're going to do deep research. So trust them. Let them guide you. Don't assume that everything that came before was terrible or wonderful. Don't make any of those assumptions. Let Follow their lead. Don't assume that, for example, a homosexual couple couldn't have happily ever after. It might not be exactly the same happily ever after that a duke and duchess get in, in Regency England, but they're going to find a way to navigate Right. It. There are people who have happy endings all throughout history. Absolutely. Um, and it's just a matter of finding those stories within the setting. Absolutely. So how aware of the problem of the chronotope were you when you started writing your books? Because you not definitely do not write Regency <laughs> historical. Also, you had no sort of awareness that this was a thing. Oh, well, I knew it was a thing. And I thought <laughs> naively that if I sort of took some of the formula that works in 19th century and in Regency Britain in that chronotope, and I just applied it somewhere else, that people would be sort of willing to take that journey with me and say, ah, you know, well, I've read about barons in, you know, Regency England. So maybe I'll read about a sugar baron in, you know, early 20th century Philippines. And I find that, no, it's not the same chronotope. And, and as I've been writing it, I realize it's not the same chronotope. And 
when I was writing, I actually took a lot more inspiration from Elizabeth Gath's goals, North and South. Um, I really used John Thornton as, in a way, sort of a model. I even had my Filipino hero educated in Britain, and I really thought of him as, as a John Thornton kind of person. And Gaskell does, I think, a lot more work. I mean, she wrote contemporary, but in the mid-19th century, but she does a lot more work in terms of dealing with socioeconomic conflict. And so that was something that I wanted to be aware of. So I probably, in my own background as an international affairs uh, major and an economist is to bring in some of that social history. And so then I just, I, I told my husband one time, I said, you know, it would probably just be better for me if I just wrote, you know, Regency Dukes. And my husband just said, there's no way you could do that. <laughs> there's no way because you'd end up writing some like really political or really, and he said, and you would have some of the same issue. You wouldn't be falling in that chronotope. You couldn't that ignore the things that the chronotope. Right. I, you know, he's like, you couldn't write a bestseller if, if, if you tried it. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks, <laughs> Thanks <a lot>. honey. <laughs> um, he meant it as a compliment, right. which is, you know, I, I, I think those books are wonderful. I'm not saying don't read those books. Read everything. Absolutely. Whatever's well written is a good story um, and has a happily ever after or a happy for now. Please read. But yeah, so I. So I, as an author, you have to do slightly different work when you're setting things in unfamiliar surroundings you have to do a lot of work and you there's there's a lot of work you have to think about also the fact that people aren't going to give you the benefit of the doubt the standards of what they consider accuracy and again sometimes it's actually mistaken accuracy it's perceived accuracy which is a horrible weapon that is used but you you have to acknowledge that people are going to probably look things up more in your book than in the regency duke book they you know they're going to be they're going to give somebody a pass. They're going to, of course, my hero doesn't have syphilis. Right. When when the, the history says that 15% of the general population had syphilis know, in the 19th century. I know, your statistics were terrible. And, and some of them were <laughs> from youth, like young people had yeah. syphilis. Yeah, 8%. In Chester, England, the statistics were 8% of men would have syphilis before age 35. And it's a death sentence, right? And and 92% of those men are going to give that disease to their wife. And, and medical ethics at the time was that doctors, even if they suspected that the man had syphilis, which wasn't always clear because of the latency stage, but if the, even if they thought that it was syphilis, they might not tell him. Because then he would he would have an ethical, I think, obligation not to marry and not to have children because, of course, he would pass out the disease. And so it's crazy. Nobody talks about this. And, and we give it a pass, as we should, because there's no happily ever after right. with the um, syphilitic man. I mean, he's, he's only a villain. <laughs> right. So because it wasn't hard enough to set something outside of Regency England, <laughs> oh, no. um, one of the other things that you've tried to do is have romances that involve Philippines people. You don't just have sort of Americans, foreigners in a foreign setting. How hard was that? To, <laughs> well, not, not just to sort of get right, but also to portray in a way that doesn't make just having that pairing be the, the central conflict. Well, first of all, I'm not sure I have gotten it totally right. And I'm trying to to work on it and do better every time. And I think that's a challenge of any fiction writing, but I think it's particularly 
true in this case. The thought to me was, if I just have Americans in the Philippines as their imperial playground, that that's just essentially reinscribing the same imperialist narrative, which I absolutely, that was the exact opposite of what I intended. What I was hoping to show Americans was, yeah, there was this overseas empire. And, and we we had no intention of going to the Philippines. But once we were there, we took it by force. We fought a war and a war from 1899 to 1913. And this is something obviously I, I teach in my day <laughs> job. So we, we fought this 14 year long brutal war to seize an overseas colony. And this is a country that was based on the idea that rule by an overseas imperial power was unjust. And that's a terrible irony. And so if I had just had my main characters be Americans, I feel like that would have been a bad choice. You know, then that means you have to choose to write a race and ethnicity and a history that you're not a part of. And, and that's the challenge. I've lived in the Philippines. And when I was there, that's when I started writing romance. So I had a wonderful opportunity to do a ton of research. And that's, I think, the only way you can do it is you have to immerse yourself in the research, do the best you can, listen, and, and just keep trying to do it better. So this is one of the comments that we hear from I guess, white authors, mm -hmm. when it comes to looking at writing more diverse characters is how do I write with authenticity? How do I get it right? How do I not offend people? Like You're going to get things wrong. And you're going to get things wrong. And you have to listen when people say you've gotten this wrong. And you have to then try and do it better the next time around. I think that if you double down and defend yourself against people who are actually own voices who are telling you, <laughs> you know, you got something wrong and you double down and defend yourself, that's a losing battle, first of all. And second of all, you're wrong. <laughs> they, they're the arbiter of whether you got it wrong and you got it wrong. You have to acknowledge you're doing the best you can and that the work isn't necessarily perfect, yeah. um, but it's an attempt. And for me, the question of writing diverse characters is number one, why are you doing it? So are you doing it because you're trying to commercially exploit the lack of diverse characters in the market? If that is your reason, stop and stick with your white characters and have your stories be there. If you're doing it for another reason, because you feel it's representative, because you feel there's a story there, because for me in particular, I've been fortunate enough to live overseas for seven years of my life. And I love the interaction and intersection of different cultures and peoples. And I find that fascinating. So that was a part of my interest from the beginning. So I think the reason why you're doing it is important. And I think the number two thing for me is to try to remember that people are people. You're going to have, you know, just as I have some American characters who are my heroes or heroines, I have some American characters who are horrible, horrible people. So that <laughs> leads really neatly to my next question, which is how you, do you avoid idealizing the non-white characters because mm. sometimes authors can also go the other way where right. the non-white characters sort of can never do anything wrong. wrong. Right, which is, it, it seems like a natural impulse. And what I've tried to do is to try and remember the humanity of everyone. For example, your heroes and heroines, they should also have some flaws too. Um, they should have some struggles. They should be growing. You know, they may have their pride or they they may have some other 
weakness, initial weakness in their, in their, in their overall profile. You just, you start from there, whether they're white or non-white, they are going to have their own goals and ambitions and motivations. When do you draw the line of, for example, so if you look at people in history, they're going to be more likely to echo prejudices of their time. Mm. Um, And one of the papers Mm -hmm. that was presented in IASPA was around ventriloquizing, Mm. ventriloquizing, ventriloquizing. I think that was the word, Ventriloquizing characters that are portrayed as heroes and heroines and choosing to do that despite the fact that they're saying things that in a modern context aren't going to be acceptable. So how do you navigate that line? Because I know for um, Hotel Oriente where the hero is a hotel manager, he Mm -hmm. has to deal with different types of people people that he has to be deferential to, so the guests and, you know, the politicians and people that are sort of subservient to him in terms of of his job and who might not do their jobs. Like I found that really fascinating because you tread that line so carefully, but I could – I guess I I was barracking for you to get it right, right. But so then I was also really worried as I was reading it, like please, please get it right. Like and I think it was fine. But – is, is that a scary thing to do as an author to kind of skate that line? Oh, it is. It is thoroughly terrifying. And I would say that I didn't quite get the balance right in Under the Sugar Sun because as a historian, I was I wanted to show the prejudice that Americans had. And you can you can overdo that so easily. And in retrospect, I, I would sort of back away a little bit and, and sort of go the chronotope method and say, yeah, we're going to be historically selective. The the inner historian in me sort of got a little carried away, um, whereas in Hotel Oriente, I wanted a lighter feel. So I was more willing to do that. And I think it was... I think it does have a, a better balance. So in Hotel Oriente, it wasn't enough that you broke the chronotope, the familiar chronotope. It wasn't enough that you had <laughs> sort of an interracial pairing in, in a sort of unfamiliar setting. You also had a heroine who was well, deaf. Well, yeah, Oriente doesn't have an interracial relationship. Oh, sorry. Yes, that's right. Because she's American and he's American. But he, right. I guess I started seeing him yeah. as Filipino because he, he wasn't there to leave, right? He was he, there he, to right. stay. And he was, I think, a person that many of us have seen abroad, which is in Manila, he found a very cosmopolitan, comfortable place where, and he was also orphaned at a young age, and he'd grown up in a hotel. So to him, being in a hotel in Manila, that was a home. But how funny that I've kind of internalized him as <laughs> local population. <laughs> but I think that's one of the things that's wonderful about the Philippines in particular is that it's actually, it is such a cosmopolitan place. Manila was so gorgeous then pre-World War II. Mm. And it, you know, it really was such a, a meeting place. That aspect of it, I think Moss really loves about the city. So why did you choose the uh, time of American, I guess, occupation versus Spanish occupation? I know more about it. (laughs) (laughs) It's a good answer. (laughs) Um, I don't. I also, unfortunately, do not speak Spanish. So there would be a lot of sources that one of the things I love to do is use microhistory. So I will read um, the sources of the time. And so a lot of, for example, Moss, when he's running this hotel and the complaints Americans have when they come up to the desk and they say, you know, this isn't right. And, you know, where's my mattress? And he's thinking to myself, you have no idea how to sleep in the tropics, do you? Yeah. And that came from a magazine article 
And it was essentially a complaint somebody had about the American managerial staff at the Hotel Oriente. And so I try to use the sources of the time as much as possible to give me little tidbits and details. How long did you research this time period and your characters before you could even start writing your first book? So when when I was in college, I studied Southeast Asian history, not Philippine history, but the whole region. So I had a framework for the region's history um, that had been one of my key areas. And then uh, when we lived there, I spent about three years teaching Southeast Asian history to ninth graders before I started writing. And it took probably another year of research before that, that was specifically on the American period. So I used the Ateneo de Manila library, the American heritage collection there. Um, so I would, I would go there and I would just immerse myself. There's a microfiche of the Manila Times newspaper that goes all the way back to its founding. And so I would just page through editions and days of that newspaper. It was really, I'm such a geek. This is totally me history geeking out. And we, we traveled and, you know, I dragged my husband down to Negros and to Dumaguete and Baez. So. so then what has been the reaction to this book? Let me frame this question because no one else writes Filipino historical romance, like not just in this time period, but in yeah. any time period. And at least anecdotally, every time you mention it to Filipino writers of romance, there are good reasons for why they can't do it. And some of it has to do with chronotope, like they can't mm -hmm. find a combination of setting, time and characters that they feel can be a happy ending. But some of it also is to do with the fact that their families lived the history. And so for them to write it is too personal and potentially too <laughs> incendiary for their family. But the reaction to your books, as far as I've seen, is that people are glad you have sort of started writing in this period so that it illustrates that it can be done. But there are, there are just things we're uncomfortable with. Like Javier is actually super interesting because A, he's a landowner and he's a sugar baron and you kind of know what those families become. But this isn't something we think of in Regency. When you think about dukes and whatever landed peers in Regency times, a lot of them will have, you know, lost the land or the buildings are decrepit. I mean, I think there's um, there's like a TV show that where people buy really old estates and oh, really? or inherit them and then they realise how much it costs to actually do them up, even just to maintain it. So what makes it so hard for people? Like what makes it so hard for me, Jen? Tell it's me why so, is it so hard? It is so hard and, and I would absolutely, I would love for it, to be a whole world that everyone played in and that I would love to have, you know, for example, the romance class writers be writing historical romance set in Philippine history and then I can sort of join in their chronotope that they help create. So I welcome that. Absolutely. But from what they've they've said is, it, yeah, it's too close. It's it's too personal. And maybe somebody needs some distance. I don't know if that's always the case or if that's the case now. And that will change. Because like I said, I think it would be wonderful. Yeah, it's really difficult. Nobody asks where Fitzwilliam Darcy got his money. Right. And I, you know, I, I mentioned in my in my talk at Yasper that, 
£10,000 a year is a lot of money. If you were to convert that to, you know, modern US dollar kind of conversion, it depends on the purchasing power you're going to talk about. It could be anywhere from, you know, half a million dollars to $41.5 million. So we're talking about princely sums. Where did he get that money? Um, and it's not just as tenant farmers, but if you start with the tenant farmers, that's also potentially problematic. It's not It's not comfortable with what our modern idea of a legitimate way to earn, even though corporations do it all the time, they earn off the, the workers' work, but it's uncomfortable for us. So also coal mines. And my grandfather was a coal miner. He died of black lungs. So that is no way romanticized work. And Austin alluded to this a little bit, I believe in Mansfield Park, maybe the Indies, sugar in the Indies. And so we don't ask where Darcy got his money. And Javier does not have slips. Okay, this is not, you know, it's very, and, and I've tried to, while being a social and economic historian, I, I've tried to have the heroine sort of challenge him a little bit on his presumptions of, you know, essentially running a town. I mean, it's almost like a factory town and and he has to be the benevolent employer. And she challenges him on his assumptions there. And she says, you know, why don't you want more for these people? Why Why don't you let me educate people so they have other choices? And at first, you know, he says, people here is rural. You know, people here are farmers. What What is reading poetry going to to get them. Uh, but then, of course, he, he absolutely, you know, buys the blackboards for the school. Yeah. And when the, the girls are uh, have to do some extra work to help out their families, you know, he's tutoring them at night in English. And so he, he buys into that. That's romance, right? So I make this sort of bucolic hacienda where people feel protected and comforted, but also have opportunities to leave and that when they want to leave, when they want something better, that he's going to support them. That's a chronotope. That's also utopian. It is. <laughs> and I think that might be part of why it's difficult to read because you're like, if only things had worked out like this. Right. <laughs> right. Because it didn't. And the history of sugar anywhere in the world is complicated. Right. And the history of sugar in the Philippines is obviously still very complicated. So sugar plantations, for example, in American history mm. would be problematic too. Mm. I don't know if we have many books, uh, romance books set in that time period either. There, I think, are some highly problematic ones. And I haven't read them to be honest. I know we had another person who presented at Jasper on the television program Queen Sugar, which I am really anxious to watch because it, it to me it feels like you've got these three siblings who are trying to make a go of family, you know, a family sugar plantation which and they're African American. And I think that idea is is sort of the idea of wanting to keep the land in the family to keep this concern going because we're all addicted to sugar. We're going to have to get sugar somehow, but to try and make this better is, I, I that sounds fascinating. I can't wait to watch that. So you're currently working on the second full-length book in this series, yes, in the Sugar Sun series. So can you tell us a little bit about that? No pressure. Um, no, <laughs> no, it's in terms of making my life difficult for myself. <laughs> um, in Under the Sugar Sun, there's a brother whom everyone hates for reasons. We'll leave it there. Um, but he was an American soldier and he joined 
the army because, as is typical in the United States, the whole sort of war machine geared up and said, we're, we're going to be fighting in Cuba to liberate the Cubans from the evil Spanish. Um, and of course, the evil Spanish things that made the Spanish so evil, like General Weiler and, and his reconcentrados are the things actually the United States ended up doing in the Philippines. So there's that. You know, he joins with a sense of patriotism and, and the idea that he's going to so do for, good. For he's a young guy, right? I mean, he's young and stupid and, and he was just turned down from a marriage proposal and he wants to prove himself and, and you know, he wants to do good things. And so he figures, okay, and he doesn't want to be a tailor like his grandfather. So he figures, okay, I'll join the army. He didn't get a fight in Cuba. He ends up fighting in, you know, being sent over to the Philippines and then up to China for the Boxer War and then back down to the Philippines. And then he ends up in a town called Balaniga. And that just goes very badly. It's like a massacre, right? It's actually... The choice of language is really important. Americans called it a massacre. Right. The neutral term that Rolando O. Borinaga, who's the main historian whose work I use, he calls it an incident. And I think that's okay. It's very neutral. You could call it an attack, an ambush. Basically, occupation, no matter what your reasons for occupying, whatever you think they are, if you think they're valid or noble, I don't know how, but if you think they're valid or noble, it's going to go badly. Right. Every occupation goes badly throughout history. And this one goes badly. And the initial town relations are not horrible between the Americans and the people of Balaniga, but it devolves over time. And it, and it gets to the point where the Americans actually imprison all the men of the town in these two tents in the, in the town square. It's horrific in that sense. And, and it, it, they use them as basically labor to, quote unquote, clean up the town. Um, and it's just basically a West Pointer. A West Point captain, you know, being all West Point, right. being all this is the U.S. Military Academy, buttoned up, and this is the what he's thinking. And Ben, who's who's a sergeant at this point, is just looking around, just thinking, "Oh, this this is not good." Yeah. So the people they they rise up and they attack the garrison, and uh, forty eight Americans were killed. And so the Americans call it a massacre. If you look at the actual history of it, you'll see that the town got fed up. They attacked. Right. It was a revolution. It was a, it was a revolution. It was time, war. This town. is war. So if if this were an American village, and I, I guess the point that I always want to make to my American readers is that if this all had happened in the United States, this would be you know a the glorious would attack. Be, yeah, yeah, this would, would be the heroes. Yeah, an uprising, right? So this right. would be a Paul Revere kind of episode, right? And instead, you know, to the Americans, it's a massacre, and so. I try to ask those questions very subtly in romance, which I don't know if that's a really good idea. <laughs> <laughs> that's the role of fiction, right? I mean, romance can be more than one thing. Yeah. To be in the genre, you have to make sure you do the things that the genre requires. Mm. But that doesn't mean that the book can't do other things as right. well. And that's how we get to classics normally. Right. That may be inflating the overall power <laughs> of my books, but thank you. Well, I mean, no one else is writing in this space, in this genre. So, so you know, there's no one else in the running, Jen. So, <laughs> Win by default, yay! Um, but okay, so the brother gets a book. So this is all his backstory. And actually, I'm making it sound like that's, this is what the book's about. No, I mean, this actually, is all his backstory. It, and in the first book, he, he doesn't really feature very heavily. No, I mean, he, he doesn't. He's sort of... Um, a jerk. He, uh, yes, <laughs> but he's also sort of mostly off page, and he yeah. he, he he provides motivation for the heroine, true, true, for his true. sister. Um, so now in his book, 
You have to do a lot of work to then make him a heroic character. Yes. He's not heroic in the traditional sense of, you know, soldier, Green Beret, Navy SEAL hero kind of way. He's suffering from what we would now call post-traumatic stress disorder, which is something that I actually, I have three very, very, very close friends who are veterans, combat veterans who struggle with PTSD. And, And it is their their willingness to share their experiences with me. And they've done it over a period of almost 20 years that I've drawn upon in terms of writing this character. Now he is his own person. He's none of those three people, but that's been tremendously helpful for me in terms of feeling like I can write who he is and what, what he needs. And he won't be just magically fixed and healed, but he will get better. And what he needs is essentially a strong woman. He needs a woman who listens and he can listen to because he's he's actually seeking someone whom he can support and love and 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 be with. And so that's that's the heroine whom he will find. And she's more educated than he is. And she is she comes from a, a higher class background. She's so is she she's Filipino. Filipino. Oh, yeah. so, okay, so that's kind of a reversal of like the Filipina is yeah. sort of higher socially she is, than yes. the hero who is not Filipino. She, he's American, right? And that was the same in Under the Sugar Sun. That oh yeah, that that's because true. they're they're you know they're working class Bostonians. They are you know the grandchildren of a tailor, the the children of a seamstress. Yeah, but in in the first book, the hero is higher, uh, right? And ranked. that's true. Yeah, yeah that's true. Um, so then let's move on to the third okay. book. <laughs> <laughs> Which is the uh, the defrocking of the sexy priest, mm-hmm. which I think they prefer the term the transitioning. The tra- no, I the prefer priest. the defrocking. The defrocking. Okay. The I don't know if you had a sense of how uh, exciting and a big big deal this would be to some readers, i.e., myself. <laughs> 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 and putting aside, you know, like the really horrible things that have happened and the abuses that have happened in the Catholic Church, the issue is. He's an actual priest, like he's an ordained Catholic priest. So how do you go from an ordained Catholic priest to a romance hero who can do smutty things? It was a lot harder (laughs) than I thought. When I wrote him, I honestly, I had, I, I did always have a plan to give him his own book, which means to make him a romance hero. And I thought to myself, this may not be appreciated. And particularly, I was worried that if I, you know, with Filipino readers, that they would not be interested in this at all. And I so thought to was myself... was there a reaction after the book came out that sort of... Could you tell from the reaction that they would be more receptive than you maybe feared? Yes. Uh, there was, <laughs> there, was there, there were tweets that were sort of like, I don't want to tell you this, but I'm thinking of Andres and I'm, I'm going to back quietly out of the room. And I was yes. like, hashtag yeah, book three. Andres, Andres. <laughs> That's the official hashtag now. Um, I was worried. I, I, I figured, you know, maybe people will be with me for the other books and then they're just going to sort of tap out of this one and not and not read it and then and then I found out no that's the book they're actually waiting for and and I can't do it yet because it's it's complicated when I started to look into it not only is it complicated now which it really is even though it happens it was really complicated at the beginning of the 20th century so there was a a canon law change in 1917 that made it a a bit easier and then Vatican II in the mid-60s made it a bit easier but before those things which is when we're dealing with it basically you had to either 
admit when you took your vows that you were unfit. So that means sort of psychologically unfit to take those vows, or you have to uh, live a scandalous life for you know five years or more, in which case you are essentially planning to sin continuously for five years and then also bring somebody else into quote unquote sin for five years. So it wasn't really heroic. It wasn't heroic. And moreover, even if you married, you could have your clerical position taken away, but you did not get released from your vow of chastity um, or celibacy. Sorry. You still were supposed to be celibate in that marriage. That's just not going to work. You know, in terms of the chronotope of romance, yeah, that's I not going to work. Even in modern times, when you dig into it a little bit, even priests who have left the priesthood in the modern time, mm-hmm. it takes them years to get yes. permission to actually properly get married in the church. Yes. Um, and a lot of them just end up with a civil marriage because they just can't get that permission. Right. I think you have to get it from the Vatican. You do. And not only you have to get it from the Vatican, you have to get it from the Pope, but you also have to get it from your bishop because every every diocesan priest is essentially an extension of the bishop. And it's really intense. And then there's so many restrictions. You can't live where you ever once you know, were a priest. You can't even do some functions in mass, even though you're still a priest yeah, because it's an indelible your, yeah, imprint right. on the soul. And I think it's a very difficult thing for a, a lot of people. And yet when I did the research, what I found a lot of people f- are frustrated by is since the 80s, they have allowed Anglican priests who were married, who then converted to Catholicism to become Catholic priests. And so there's and keep a, their marriage and they keep their marriage. And so you cannot become a Catholic priest as a Catholic if you're already married, but you can sort of find this sort of back door in. It's all fascinating to me. But yeah, Andres can't, there's going to have to be a loophole. I found it. It's pretty small. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And it's it's not going to be one that he's going to be eager to exploit. It's going to feel impossible. Okay, well, I'm looking forward to reading about that loophole. (laughs) So to finish things off, uh, I wanted to ask you what Books do you recommend in historical romance that write outside of the Regency chronotope that are set outside of that familiar setting? It depends on how you want to define the Regency chronotope. So Alyssa Cole's Loyal League series, um, so much from Beverly Jenkins, set in Kansas, set in the Civil War, uh, set in Colorado, the American West. So so many good things. Uh, One that um, she told me about recently that is set in Cuba. So I'm, I'm really anxious for that. If you also look at it in terms of sort of the cishet aspect of the chronotope, you can get K.J. Charles and uh, A Seditious Affair, which was one of my favorites. It's a very political, male-male uh, romance. It's also class-breaking. So you've got a hero who's you know, elite. He's not a peer, which I appreciate, but he's you know an, a, a prestigious family and a very you know working class, um, a political pamphleteer. So that's really exciting. Even you know Joanna Bourne, I really enjoyed Forbidden Rose, which is set during the French Revolution, um, and not just during the you know yay life liberty um, and the rights of man and citizen kind of French revolution but everything all the the terror yeah yeah Yeah, i mean it's during the terror and it's it's trying to essentially fight robespierre it was just i love as a historian i love that there's so there's so much out there that's really good and you're building like a good a goodreads list of books that offer this kind of diversity right um yeah I, i mentioned you know 
Piper Hughley, who who's writing during Reconstruction era, um, wonderful stuff, uh, all the way to Evangeline Holland, who um, wrote in sort of World War One and Edwardian period. Yeah, so definitely crowdsourcing this book on this list on Goodreads. There's two lists. There's one that's political and social and economic kind of conflict. Um, so it's not where, but what's sort of centering the story. And then the other list is sort of where. Is a setting. Yeah. Okay. Jeannie, Jeannie Lynn. I was going to ask. Um, uh, so, yeah, so, so wonderful. For settings that are sort of outside of the Western countries, mm. when you um, narrow it down to sort of that, it gets the list gets even shorter, right? Because there yeah. are not many people writing in outside the West. There, there's not many. I mean, there are a few that are well-known. I love Jeannie Lin's uh, Tang Dynasty historicals. The Jade Temptress is maybe one of my, my favorites of all time because, again, I love redeeming sort of the character that you didn't like from the previous book, and that's what she does there. Uh, so you start with the Lotus Palace, and the you know there's sort of a police investigator, sort of a Tang Dynasty police investigator, and, and he's not somebody you particularly like even though you see like just a bit of his vulnerability and then in the next book he's the hero and I'm just like yay (laughs) um and I think in Iaspa they mentioned that Sherry Thomas writes outside of Chronicles as well and I'm I'm really anxious to read some of the books that they talked about there I haven't read Not Quite a Husband yet because it has a female doctor and I have a female doctor coming up and I try to avoid Things too that much sound similarity, too much right? similarity. So I haven't read that, but I, the one Eric Sellinger was talking about, my darling enemy, is that right? Yes, yes, I think so. That one I and the that one that right. came after it. If he teaches a class just on that one book, then I'm, <laughs> I'm in. I, I want to read that. That's all we have time for in this episode. Huge thanks to our brilliant audio producer Rudy Bremer. You can find the show notes for episode 61 at bookthingo.com.au slash podcast. If you enjoy the show and would like to support us, the best way to do that is to leave a review on iTunes or just tell your friends to give us a try. We also love reading live tweets. If this is something you do, please use the hashtag BTPod so we can find and enjoy your tweets. We have had some fabulous feedback over the last few months our Rom Book Love episode was particularly fun. Writer Gal tweeted that between Elvis and the rubber gloves, I choked on my tea. Hashtag bloody love it. Look, I have to admit, those were my highlights too. Jen Ellen tweeted that she listened to episode 60, which was about romance lists, and really enjoyed the discussion quite a bit. Brought many thoughts I've wondered about the top 100 list. If you enjoyed episode 60, do check out the show notes for this episode. We didn't talk to each other about the AAR list at all before either the podcast or her presentation, but we raised some very similar issues. In the next episode, Rudy and Gabby are back. In the meantime, please visit us at bookthingo.com.au and have a fabulous fortnight of reading.